0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work... Go with the card that puts the travel in business travel. The Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. TurboTax makes all your moves count. Filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, Switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at turbotax.com/guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. This episode is brought to you by PipeDrive, the easy and effective CRM for closing more deals and driving small business growth. New year, new targets. PipeDrive allows you to automate your sales process so you can focus on your other business priorities in 2024. With PipeDrive, you can stay on top of your sales activities so you never miss a follow-up. So sign up today and get a special 60-day free trial now at pipedrive.com with the code BUILT. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone, and Happy New Year. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, but for today, we wanted to revisit the story of Steve Ells of Chipotle. In the introduction, you'll hear me say that Chipotle has about 2,300 locations in the U.S. and around the world. Well, I recorded that in 2017, and since then, Chipotle has added more than 300 additional locations. Anyway, if you haven't heard the story yet, it's a great one, so enjoy. Enjoy.
1: Over a one-month period, fifty-two people mm. uh, got sick with E. coli. Were you freaking out? Well, freak—I don't know—freaking out is the right, the right mm. way to describe it. Um, I mean, it was just—it was all-encompassing. I mean, mm. it was—it was like it was really intense. You know, no—you wouldn't wish this on anybody. You know, that anyone would get sick from the food that, that you serve them is really a tough thing.
0: From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Steve Ells turned his love for San Francisco's Mission-style burritos into Chipotle, a restaurant that launched America's fast-casual food craze. So there's a famous TED talk by a guy named Barry Schwartz. It's called The Paradox of Choice. And in it, Barry explains that virtually all current research on human behavior supports this idea that we humans, we don't really like to have too many choices. Anything beyond four to six actually makes us anxious and unhappy, which could help explain the success of Chipotle. Because if you've ever been in one, you can probably tell me the menu by heart burrito, bowl, salad, tacos. Four options. That is it. There isn't a whole lot to agonize over. And it's one of the reasons why Chipotle just exploded in the 2000s. On the eve of the millennium, the company had just a bit more than 20 stores. And today, Chipotle has nearly 2,300 locations across the U.S. and in four other countries, and its value is around $14 billion. Now, Chipotle, as you will hear, was never meant to become what it became. It was supposed to be a one-off burrito joint in Denver, a burrito joint that would generate enough cash to finance a high-end restaurant. That was Steve Ells's plan. He's actually a classically trained chef, and he wanted to make Michelin-starred food, not foil-wrapped burritos.
1: You know, the earliest recollection I have of in, being in the kitchen and, and cooking I was in the third grade, hmm. and we lived in Germany, and I remember
0: cooking uh, scrambled eggs. How'd you make them? Did you scramble I, them before? <laughs> did, you, did you did you crack the eggs into the pan and scramble them, or did you scramble them before? No, no, I, I,
1: I scrambled them uh, before. Okay. Uh, with a fork in okay. a bowl, okay. and then uh, my mom had a a very well seasoned uh, cast iron skillet. Nice. I mean, it was very very smooth and uh, almost nonstick. And I used to push the curds into the center in, in, a, in a square shape, hmm. a perfect square, maybe three by three or three and a half by three and a half, something like that. And then and then it, when it was just set enough, I would flip it over and. Um, I mean, it was very controlling. Like, and it says a lot about me because I'm a, I'm a little bit of a control freak. And hmm. uh, of course, I had no idea then, but um, I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting, it's an interesting memory.
0: Like at what point did you start to, because I've read like stories about you in college where you'd, you would dinner parties and, and people were like, what is this butter that you butter? You, you know, you'd, you'd, <laughs> you'd make like duck confit and stuff. Like, how did you even know about this? How did you get into food at such a young age? Yeah, well, you know, my mom
1: was a very, adventurous cook Hmm. and a really good one. Um, and she had a garden and she got all the cooking magazines and had a lot of cookbooks. And, and, and I used to, I used to spend time in the kitchen and, Hmm. um, and, and follow along. And, And at some point I started watching cooking shows, Julia Child and, and, uh, Graham on the Galloping Gourmet and the, the PBS series, the MasterChef series. I really loved those and, and would duplicate the recipes and and, and and like to cook for, you know, my family. And then um, when I was older in high school, I started having people over.
0: Hmm. So you go to college in in Boulder, right? Yes. And you study art history. I did. Uh, you know, of course it made
1: zero sense to my father. Uh, what do you do with a art history degree? Would he you know? say
0: that to you? Would he be like, so what are you gonna do with that art history degree? Of course.
1: <laughs> and I would say, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how this unfolds. And, and probably I, I was thinking that I would continue and, and go to graduate school, but my roommate suggested to me that I go to cooking school. Mm. She said this just weeks before graduation. Why
0: did she suggest that?
1: Well, she knew I was into cooking, mm. and I, I think she had visited uh, the Culinary Institute of America mm. and said, Steve, you'll, you would love this place. So I applied and I went. and 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 only went because... You know, I don't think I knew exactly what I wanted to do, so it was an adventure. But I would say there is a there is a halfway point um, where you go for a few months and work in a restaurant of your choice. And I chose to work at Stars Restaurant in San Francisco. This
0: was the most famous restaurant, like one of them in America at the time. Jeremiah Tower, right? It was the was the head chef.
1: It was a really important restaurant, and I had eaten at
0: Stars a few times when I was in college. And loved it. What was he like? I mean, because I, I mean, I've I've read a little bit about him, and like Mario Batali worked for him, tons of really famous chefs. What mm. what was he like to work for?
1: It's hard to describe <laughs> really what what he's like. I, I will say that he's an amazing visionary and quite a perfectionist, and so it was high pressure for sure, and uh, it was super super stressful, um, really really hard work. But you would put your dishes up and and all the cooks would put their dishes up and and Jeremiah would come along and, and taste and you know it was it was uh, it ranged from you know a nod like you know good job to picking up the plate and throwing it in the trash which was you know you know <laughs> re- really traumatic but I loved it I really did and um, and i'm I'm lucky to have been able to work there
0: when you were first in San Francisco did you did you encounter? burritos or food that you would eventually, you know, would actually change your life? Sure, well, the, the idea for uh, Chipotle
1: is a sort of a combination of food borrowed from stars and sort of a technique and a service format borrowed from the taquerias. In the in San Francisco? In San Francisco, mostly in the Mission District.
0: Well, what, what what was so special about those taquerias?
1: Like, what did you notice? There were a few of them and, and, and they were quite good. Um, and I used to I used to go to these places before work. Hmm. The first time I went, a, a friend of mine took me, and uh, I got the burrito. It was probably a carnitas burrito, giant flour tortilla, and all the things on the on the inside: the rice, the beans, the meat, salsa, cheese, etc. And uh, then wrapped up, and then wrapped in foil. And I, I take it to the counter, and I, and I unwrap it. And he's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm, I'm unwrapping my you burrito." Take all the foil off. Take the foil off. He's like, "No, no, no, no! You peel the foil back, and you know." I'm like, "Oh gosh, okay. Let me rewrap and try this again." And I, and I loved it. I just I was intrigued, and you know, growing up in in Colorado, this is not how we ate burritos. Burritos were. On a plate and then smothered with green chili, and you you ate them with a the knife and fork. Mm. And so and so, this was this was a really interesting experience for me. And and I went a lot, and I, I just started counting the number of people going through the line, and thinking, oh my gosh, these are five bucks a piece. Da, 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 da. I did some quick math. There's a couple guys cooking, a couple guys serving. How much did they make? Mm. So I, you know, on the napkin, I was like. Oh. Wow. Okay, this is a pretty good economic model. Of course, I wasn't call, calling it an economic yeah. model then. I was, I just said oh, I could probably make some money with this, and and with that money, I could afford to open up my my full scale
0: restaurant. Okay, d- just just to understand, you you thought that a a taqueria could earn you enough money that you could open up a, a fine dining restaurant, right?
1: Well, I, I mean
0: that that seemed
1: logical to me. That I mean that seemed like the way to do it. Yeah. And you know these 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 burrito shops, these taquerias were small. Uh, the investment would be low, uh, the rent certainly was low, and and there were lines out the door. Hmm. And, and I thought that that I could make enough money to fund my full-scale restaurant. And so I knew I wanted to move back to Colorado to start this. Well, why? Well, there's nothing like it in Colorado. Yeah. Um, I certainly didn't want to compete with all the taquerias in the Mission. It was not, it wouldn't be novel to anybody. Yeah. Maybe it would be really good. Yeah. Maybe I could make better burritos, but again, I thought, I wanted to go to a place where no one uh, had seen this style of service before. And by the way,
0: how did you figure out how to do the recipes? I mean, obviously, you're a chef, but you know there's techniques and there's ways of of really making refried beans or 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 pinto beans or whatever it was. and to Carnitas, how did you come up with your method? Sure. Well, the Stars was really good
1: training. You know we would we would come in at at noon and you know we would learn at that time what we were going to cook that evening. And you know, there wasn't a set menu per se, and there weren't recipes per se. You had to, you know, figure it out based on the style of the restaurant and and what, you know, Jeremiah and Mark, the executive chef wanted. Mm. And so, it wasn't like I had to, you know, labor over the the recipes. It was it's it's relatively simple food,
0: or I should say it's it's really simple food mm-hmm. at Chipotle. So, all right. So, you want to you want to go to, to back to Colorado, and I mean, was the idea to to, to maybe open it up in Boulder, Colorado? Yeah, I, I thought I would open it up in Boulder, and
1: had trouble finding a location that I liked hmm. that I could afford. Um, nothing seemed right, and a friend of mine was working in Denver, and somehow met a commercial real estate broker. I went to his office and made a pitch. Hmm. And just said, here's here's what I'm thinking of doing, and I described Chipotle pretty much as you see it today.
0: And he well, said, what wow. was your
1: what was your description to him? What was it going to be? Well, I, I you know I described the food, I, I described the service format. I said, I said first of all, you know, it's going to be an open kitchen, hmm. and we're going to be grilling meats, and cooking whole beans, and mashing avocados for guacamole, and grating the cheese, and Dicing the tomatoes and jalapenos and onions and chopping fresh herbs like cilantro and oregano. And, and you know, he, he, he seemed very excited about the, the prospect. And so uh, he said, well, give me give me a, about a week. I'll, I'll identify, you know, a few potential real hmm. estate sites and we'll go on a tour. And uh, we, we saw a, um, a Dolly Madison ice cream store. This was the first site we saw. Uh, near the University of Denver campus. And it was 850 square feet. It was in terrible condition. It needed a lot of work. I think the rent was $800 a month wow. or something like this. That's pretty
0: good. Yeah,
1: basically nothing. And so I convinced my father to lend me the money. It was actually you know, part investment, mm-hmm. part loan. How much did you need at
0: that point? This is 93.
1: I, I, you know, I forget how much I I told him initially, but it ended up being eighty thousand dollars, eighty five thousand dollars.
0: So, so it was a substantial but not insane amount of money. I mean, you 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 basically needed that money to clean up the place and make it look nice. Yeah, I mean, I had to strip off the vinyl tiles on
1: the floor to mm. reveal the oak wood floor underneath, which I refinished and. Painted the walls and built out a kitchen and tiled it and put up stainless steel and on the walls who, in the kitchen. Who designed and all it. that stuff? Well, so I, I had an architect of, of record to get the uh, to get the permit hmm. and found a contractor and then sort of designed and built as we go. And I was there every day and I was I was hands on uh, helping him build the thing. Do,
0: do you have a a just natural design aesthetic? Is that like are you is your is just a you know something that you're naturally good at? Well, I would
1: say that the design aesthetic came out of the necessity to be frugal. Hmm. So, the, so the table bases were, were pipes. The, the service counter oh, uh, yeah. was faced with barn metal. Hmm. Just, just materials that were inexpensive and that, that were easy to, to install. And I remember making the tabletops with the, with the contractor and, and we were applying the stainless steel to the top of the plywood. And, and then he wanted to put stainless steel on the edges also. And I said, no, 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 you have to you have to let people see the plywood. They have to see the striations of the plywood. They have to see how it's built. And so the aesthetic for Chipotle was very much about how it was put together. Yeah. And And I think this spoke to the food. So as you looked past the counter into the kitchen, you could see the basic ingredients. You could see, you know, chicken and steak and avocados and rice and beans and all the things and how it was simply put together. And so I think this connection to the built environment was something that made the brand special.
0: And I don't think it was obvious to most people. I don't, yeah. I don't think I mean it wasn't even obvious to me at the time. So you so, so you open uh, the first store in 1993, right? Right. And and it was it was just going to be like a temporary thing.
1: Yes. This was going to be one restaurant and this was going to be a uh, cash cow that could hmm. uh, fund and help support a full-scale restaurant. You know, I knew I knew that full-scale restaurants were a dicey proposition. I mean, a, they go out of business often. It's it's hard to make margins. Uh, very difficult to operate. And so, I wanted Chipotle to be a backup. Yeah, I deliberately made it very simple to operate. Hmm. Uh, only a few items, and simple uh, cooking techniques. Uh, not a lot of ingredients, and able to operate with just uh, just a handful of
0: uh of uh, crew members how did you come up with a name chipotle because i remember when i first saw a chipotle i i knew what a chipotle pepper was but i was like what how is that pronounced is it and this is like in the early you know like the mid 90s so i was like is it chipotle or is it <laughs> kipotl? like how and and i could not have been the first one so how did you come up with that name
1: so I knew always that I was going to use chipotle peppers um, in the marinade and, you know, for the braise, for the barbacoa, in, in the beans. And I, and I wanted to use chipotle because it, it really adds a depth. It's, it's not about the heat necessarily, but a smoky character mm. um, that I think really adds complexity to the food. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I was introduced to chipotle peppers at Stars. And Jeremiah was a big fan of Southwest cuisine, and yeah. and it just occurred to me as I was looking at a can of, of chipotle peppers, and I said, "Oh my God, that's the name! Hmm. I'll call it Chipotle." And huh. and of course, nobody knew what Chipotle was, yeah. uh, and every thought everyone went, thought I was silly for for choosing a name that people couldn't pronounce. Yeah, what and, do people and, say and they, when
0: you said, "Oh, here's the name; it's Chipotle," and people were like, "What?"
1: Well, yeah. So imagine choosing a name that people can't pronounce <laughs> and they don't know what it means. So did you ever? So, think,
0: so did you ever think maybe they're right? Maybe this isn't the right name.
1: Chipotle was not an easy place. I remember customers coming in; they have to say, "Well, what is that place? Chapoodle, Chipotle, Chipolte, all kinds of all kinds <laughs> of pronunciations." <laughs> no, I've heard it all. <laughs> and then you had to walk up to the counter and actually sort of build your burrito. And and this was this was confusing to a lot of people. They said, "Well, what do you have?" And I said, "Well, we have all these things here. There's burritos, and in in the burrito, I I can put rice and beans and meats and salsas. And I mean, you look, you, you think about it now, and and it just seems so obvious how you you would use Chipotle. But in the early days, it was a very novel experience. Mm. It was also a novel experience to have an open kitchen so close to the customer. I mean, the grill was just a few feet away from customers and so they were really they were really involved in the production that was you know the cooking and the and the service yeah and it was it was by design I mean you know every time you have a dinner party uh, people are in the kitchen people want to be in the kitchen and so so Chipotle uh was designed to to invite people in to bring them close to where the action is
0: and you were the chef and also the cashier and you had like a couple of people helping you at the, at the beginning. Was that? Well, I
1: opened I opened with with really only a, a handful of people. Um, and I asked some of my friends if they wanted to help work the line. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was really sort
0: of cobbled together. And did you did you just make stuff or did you actually have recipes written down?
1: no, no, no. no. There's nothing written down. just made stuff (laughs) guy the 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 menu was developed the the day before I opened yeah and and it was interesting because when I trained the cooks how to make all the different you know ingredients it was it was how I learned at stars it was it was about technique and then about tasting as you go and it just didn't occur to me to write down recipes yeah because I wanted people to taste the food and really understand the techniques uh, of cooking not just think about adding you know a cup of this a tablespoon of that and and be done with it probably when we opened i can't imagine there was another fast food restaurant where the crew actually tastes the food hmm. i just i just don't think they they
0: did that right yeah you you, you start this restaurant and like what are people immediately is it a hit right away? Because, because you said a burrito in Colorado was this thing on a plate smothered in green chili sauce. So d- d- did all of a sudden people say, all oh, right, burritos, San Francisco style burritos here in Denver. Hmm.
1: So I, I remember opening July 13th um, and I opened for dinner. It was mostly friends. And I think the sales the first day were probably $240 or something like that. And the next day, a little bit more. And the next day, a little bit more. And we sort of, we got faster and more efficient and, and word spread pretty quickly. And students got, got back to campus in September. And so that helped business a little bit. But the turning point uh, was in October.
0: Of, and, of 93.
1: Of 93. And the restaurant reviewer for the uh, Rocky Mountain News was named Bill St. John. Hmm. And uh, he came in a few times. And then introduced himself and said, "Hey, I've been in a few times, and I'm going to write a r- restaurant review." I said, "Yeah, that's great. Um, how's the, how's the review going to be?" And he said, "Well, I, I'm not going to tell you." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay." And the next day, uh, a review came out, and it was it was a really glowing review. And there was one particular uh, sentence that that stood out, and and it, and and I'm paraphrasing, but it went something like this: it's, "It says." Chipotle is unlike any fast food you've had. Everything has depth, character, nuance, and layers of flavor. I know, like that, that really struck me. I'm like, well, this guy has got it. Because, because when I think about cooking and seasoning food, I'm thinking about those things. And uh, what happened next, though, we were completely unprepared for. What happened? A, bit, a line out the door that did not stop. Just mobbed. Mobbed. And we ran out of food the first day. And so we got a bigger order the next day and ran out
0: of food the second day and just could not keep up. And that started a chain of events that would forever change the way we think of fast food. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. As a business to business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and... I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. There are over 200 classes to pick from, like Anna Wintour's Masterclass on Creativity and Leadership that's helped lots of people learn new ways to nurture talent and make bold decisions, two things that are essential for any leader or entrepreneur. Plus... Every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash built. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash built. Masterclass.com slash built. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent... It's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's October 1993. Chipotle has a single store in Denver that's been open a few months, and it got a great first review from a local paper. And people started showing up to buy burritos, like a lot of people. It was crazy, crazy busy. And remember, this is 850
1: square feet total. Yeah. And so a little less than half of that was the the kitchen. So you were presumably profitable in your first year. Oh, I was profitable in the first few months. Wow. And I remember paying my dad back the loan part, uh, you know, probably that year. And
0: still taking a salary for yourself?
1: Um, You know, at that point, I was living in the basement of a friend's house. Hmm. He had a couch in the basement, and I slept on the couch. I was working from first thing in the morning until, you know, late at night and doing that, well, every day. Yeah. And I remember I paid my dad back, and he said, well, Steve... Wait, wait, a minute! You can't be, you can't, you can't be making that much money. And I said, Well, Dad, I really, I think it's doing very well. And you know, he know he knew that I hadn't taken any business classes and had never demonstrated an ability to, you know, balance my checkbook or be frugal about organizing my finances. So he said, Well, you really ought to get a, a bookkeeper. I said, Well, I do have one. He goes, Well, well, really, let me, let's let me sit down with him well, next time I'm in town. And I'm like, All right. And so we. I remember we sat down with the with the bookkeeper and and he was blown away. He's like, this thing is really efficient, making a lot of money. And it continued to get busier and busier and busier. And then everybody started asking me when I was going to open up the next Chipotle.
0: Were you still in your mind planning in, on opening a fine dining restaurant?
1: Oh, that was what I was thinking about yeah. for sure. And I had no intention of opening another Chipotle. And... and so I'm like, well, okay, maybe I'll open one more. And so I called my dad and I said, you know, everybody's pressuring me. So I said, dad, I think I'm going to do it. And he's like, all right. And So I think maybe he put in a little bit more money, but it was mostly cash flow that opened the second restaurant. And that opened about a year and a half later. And it opened up much busier than the first one. <laughs> it was extraordinary. And so I said, all right, I'll open up one more.
0: Wow. In, all in Denver? All in Denver. Three, because because people are probably saying, like, wait, three in Denver?
1: <laughs> Actually, that was one of my dad's questions. He's like, Steve, do you think Denver can have two of these? I'm like, I think so, Dad.
0: Huh. <laughs> and now it's a like one per 50,000 or something in Denver. At what point does, I mean, does somebody say or do you say or do you think maybe, maybe this is it? Maybe this is the thing that's going to. <laughs> that we should be pursuing. Maybe we. Maybe this is bigger than just Denver. Well, so that happened
1: after I had a dozen restaurants or so, wow. maybe less, maybe eight restaurants. I, I honestly, I, I, I forget. But I thought I would go to Kansas City. It seemed like a neat food town. Um, people were really into barbecue. It's a really strong barbecue culture mm-hmm. there. I like that, and I thought there could be a burrito culture too.
0: Yeah, and so. You know, it didn't open up super strong, um, but it did pretty well. And, and did you? Was that the idea that did, were you just going to keep expanding, like one store after another?
1: Well, the idea of expansion wasn't about building an empire. Hmm. There wasn't a number I was going after. I never thought, oh my gosh, if I could only have, you know, ten restaurants or twenty or fifty or a hundred or a
0: thousand. It was never, it was never like that. But I mean, you were still expanding. So how are you? How are you funding that expansion?
1: As, as you know, my dad uh, funded the first restaurant, right? and then I started signing up leases for restaurant four, five, six, seven, and then I went to my dad and said, you know, I'm, I'm signing up leases. I think I'm going to need a cash infusion. Would you like to invest? And, and luckily, he said, yes. We opened those restaurants, and they were successful, and I said, well, I'm going to continue to open up some more. Would you like to invest again? And he said, you know why don't you go raise the money yourself? And I said, Well, how do you do that? He said, Well, you need to write a business plan, and you have to, you know, go pitch it to people who are
0: qualified to invest. Wait, just and to be clear, you had already had a bunch of stores at this point. You did not have a business plan. No, no, There was no. You were just business making. Plan. You were just making burritos.
1: I was. I was just making this right. up as I as I <laughs> okay. as I went along. <laughs> right. And um, and I remember I, I hired a. Um, a college buddy who went off to get his MBA. Mm. Uh, so I hired him and, and said, well, we have to put this business plan together. And so as we put the business plan together, what emerged was this economic model, the investment, the sales, the resulting margin.
0: Did you understand any of that stuff, by the way? Well, I, I
1: didn't as we were contemplating yeah. the business plan, but after having to pitch it, you know, it, it was my MBA, really. That was that was my quick and dirty uh, business school. Hmm. And so during the, the time where I was pitching it, I met one of our early investors who turned out to be a, a board member. And, and he was really instrumental in helping me understand how special the economic model was at
0: Chipotle. What was it about the economic model that was so special?
1: Well, it was very, very efficient. First of all, the, the investment cost was was very low. Hmm. And you know typical fast food at the time had to have room for a drive through they were usually freestanding and so all of that required a sizable investment with chipotle we were going into strip malls often in the inexpensive center uh, units not the more desirable end caps this was early on so the investment was very very modest and our production system or our service format really was an assembly line and as volumes increased as we served more customers, you you would get, uh, you know, a higher and higher margin, a higher contribution margin. And so the resulting returns on investment were extraordinary. And again, n- nothing like this in the, in the restaurant industry at the time. Did you go to like private equity companies or venture capital? I did. So I, I, I started to go to institutions and then one of my initial investors Al Baldocki, suggested that I uh, send a plan to McDonald's. And, and he had met someone in McDonald's that was mm. thinking about new restaurant ideas. Right. And so I thought, well, that's a really bad idea, Al. <laughs> uh, you know, Chipotle and McDonald's are so completely different. He said, well, just, just send them a plan, see what happens. And so I did. And within a few weeks, I got a call uh, and a visit. And a couple of weeks later I got another call and they said, Oh, can we bring some more people? Hmm. And that kept going on for about a year. It it culminated in a visit from the CEO and their CFO.
0: What did they eventually do? They made an offer to to invest in Chipotle or did they want to buy it outright? Well, initially I think they wanted to buy it outright. Right. And I wasn't
1: I wasn't willing to sell. And so they made a very, very small investment enough to open a few restaurants and 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 then they you know then they annually they would they would put in more money right. over a 7 year period i think they put in 360 million dollars
0: or so wow. but the majority of that was in the last
1: couple of years but but
0: that McDonald's investment which may have been tiny for them because it's a multi-billion dollar company that cash infusion for you guys was t- tens of millions of dollars that was transformational
1: completely there was there was no i mean i was very lucky in that I don't think there's anyone else who would have been able to invest that way and bet on the come. And what I mean by that is, you know, we opened some markets, California is a great example where sales were really soft Hmm. and, and the restaurants weren't making money. But McDonald's was very patient and and they believed that the sales would come
0: in in some of the markets that were softer, and indeed they did so they they basically put in some money, and that means McDonald's had a chunk of the, owned a chunk of the company at that point right
1: they, they owned the majority of the company toward the end of the seven year period. But as we developed the relationship over the years, we realized that you know. Our way of doing things was more appropriate uh, than what their system had to offer.
0: Yeah, because you guys did things like source your meat from a specific ranch farm. Like, you found this ranch that had free-range pigs, and you you went with them, right? Right.
1: I was reading a uh, quarterly magazine called The Art of Eating, and this particular issue that I was reading was about uh, Nyman Ranch and the pork farms in Thornton, Iowa. And at the time I was reading this, I was uh, thinking about changing the recipe for our carnitas. And so uh, as I was reading this article, I, I was learning about, you know, you know, the way they they raise their pigs, which I guess is was much different than the typical way that, that pigs are raised in the United States. The vast majority of pork... Uh, is raised in confinement. So if you contrast that with, with what I saw at at Nyman Ranch, uh, I mean, it's just it's such a stark contrast. So after sampling their pork, I decided that I wanted to switch all of my supply to, to Nyman Ranch. It took about a year to get there, but eventually we
0: did. Was McDonald's ever saying to you, hey, look, you know, it doesn't make sense that you're buying, you know, these expensive products? I mean, you you look at our supply chain, look how efficient it is. You know, you you can save a lot of money. You can can increase your profit margins or did they just keep out of that? You know, they would ask questions,
1: not dissimilar from the questions you asked, but but they would see the results. So, you know, I remember when I put Nyman ranch pork on the menu, I had to increase the the price of the carnitas burrito. And I think it increased by about a dollar or something. Mm -hmm. And so in the world of fast food, that was just not understood. I mean, got to remember, this is the time when fast food had the, the 59, 79, 99 price point. I think that was at Taco Bell mm. and, the, and the dollar value menu and things like this. Here, here I am raising the price of the carnitas burrito by a dollar. And after we did that, we started selling more carnitas burritos. <laughs>
0: I mean, obviously, your business approach and theirs were totally different, and so I, I, I would imagine that you were you weren't going to last in a partnership forever, right? Right. Well, so
1: McDonald's has a very strong franchise system, yeah. and their franchisees um, obviously wanted wanted a part of Chipotle, and you know certainly they would have been capable of of operating Chipotle. Uh, there are there are a lot of good operators in the McDonald's system, um, but the economic model was so good that we wanted to own it.
0: You did not want to franchise the business.
1: We didn't. Hmm. No, and that was that was perhaps the biggest point of contention. Right. And McDonald's, you know, sort of had a duty to their franchisees to to offer Chipotle as as a as a growth vehicle. It just did it wasn't gonna be a fit. And we felt like we were ready to to go our own way.
0: The, The expansion of Chipotle was unbelievable. I mean, after that McDonald's investment, it was like it was like a rocket you know i mean and everybody and their and their brothers and sisters wanted to create the next chipotle how did that affect your your personal life i mean were, were you just like on top of the world like so excited about this or were you stressed out about this cuz you went from 13 stores to 500 stores very quickly and then from 500 stores to you know thousands now but but did you enjoy that was it exciting or were you overwhelmed ever so if you think about my original plan for Chipotle, yes,
1: I failed. <laughs> okay, because yeah, the right. intention was to to start uh, one little Chipotle, and then to be able to step away from it, and and use the funds from that restaurant to open and operate my full scale restaurant. So, I, I failed because I never stepped away from Chipotle. Um, in fact, I don't I don't think I took a day off uh, in the first year. The only time I left was when I had to run out, you know, to take the money to the bank or go to a supplier or something like this. Certainly, there was stress to it, but it was it was really exciting. Mm. On, on the other hand, though, as it as it got bigger, uh, and and the challenges got much larger, the challenges of operating a large business, I just always wondered if I was oh, qualified. So mm. it was you know it's like I I never went to business school. I didn't think of myself as a CEO. How how on earth am I going to learn to do this? So so there was a lot of doubt, self doubt along I, I the way. I imagine
0: there was, and that I, to me that seems like a very healthy thing because I would be, I would not, I would not feel confident if you didn't have self doubt. I mean that's a thing. Like you you're you're a chef, and and you are all of a sudden at the helm of this massive growing empire with tons of employees scaling quickly. Right? How did you even know how to deal with personnel and management and all this stuff? Well, you, you you learn along the
1: way, and there have been so many transformations along the way, and so over the last 24 years, it's about you know reinventing yourself, um, mm-hmm. you know learning new things. But I I got good at finding really good people. Mm. I think I think that's probably
0: what I'm best at. So so you go public, um, your share price just skyrockets and. This is, I guess, in in, in two thousand six, um, and then you have a pretty big crisis in twenty fifteen. Um, what was that like for you to deal with? This is a, we can talk about the details, but first of all, what what was that like?
1: Sure. Well, that you know that anyone would get sick from the food that, that you serve them is really a tough thing. Yeah. And um, so um, immediately, you know, you, you know, we try to figure out. What could be causing this? And it was it was a very difficult thing uh, to figure out. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of experts who we brought on immediately, and and you know the CDC and lots of investigations.
0: This started in I guess the Pacific Northwest. There's yeah. some people who got sick from from after eating it, and, and
1: so so you know, over over a one month period, uh, from basically mid October to mid November, uh, 52 people mm. uh, got sick with E. coli.
0: Were you freaking out?
1: Well, I—I I mean, freak. I don't know. If freaking out is the right—the right, the right <laughs> way to describe it. Um, you know, we were really. Well, I mean, it was just—it was all encompassing. I mean, mm. it was—it was like it was really intense. You know, no, you wouldn't wish this on on anybody. But if you back up and think about it, you know, nobody was bringing in as much fresh food, as much fresh produce and meat as Chipotle. Mm. So what we realized uh, is that we needed to develop protocols to prevent any kind of pathogen from coming into the system.
0: Which is impossible
1: um, to do 100% of the time, right? You know, you, you, you can never say 100%, yeah. but you can, you can get very close to zero. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Think about an avocado. Mm-hmm. There are potentially uh, pathogens on an avocado. But you wash the avocado, right? The avocado is washed after it's harvested. Mm. But what if that avocado could be infected somehow, falls on the ground and hits, hits a little rock or something mm. and, that, and just that little spot where the pathogen is pushed under the skin. Yeah. And now you wash it, but you, you don't wash that little spot. And what if as you put your knife into the avocado it hits to that cut spot. it, it hits
0: that exact spot. Right. Yeah. Well, what
1: are the chances of that? Time, one, in a, right. one in a million? Yeah. One in 10 million?
0: I'm thinking about all what? the avocados I cut at home and I don't wash them.
1: Well, that's right. But you you, you you cut <laughs> dozens, we cut millions and millions. And I'm not saying that the avocado was re- responsible for, uh, for, for this uh, particular incident, but we've looked at every single item we bring in and we've ensured that there are a number of interventions along the way. And so what we do with this avocado now is after we wash it, we plunge it into boiling water for five seconds. This is called blanching. Yeah. And and it's not long enough to cook the avocado, but just long enough to bring the temperature of the skin and the area under the skin just high enough so that it, it would kill any pathogen that might be there. And we do this with lemons and limes and bell peppers and jalapeno peppers. It's a process that is very, very thorough. And, and the chance that a pathogen can
0: survive through that is certainly near zero. Steve, you had this incredible run from the, literally from the first store you opened that was profitable. And then you hit this crisis point in 2015. And I can't imagine you ever dealt with anything else. Even remotely close to that. So, were you mentally prepared for it? Well,
1: uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm here now, so I got through it. Yeah. Um. But but we weren't we weren't prepared as an organization for it. Mm. Obviously. Yeah. Um. And 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 since that incident, we're two years away from it now. We are a we are a different company. Um. We have a top notch board of directors that are independent and very critical uh, in, a, in a good way, in a challenging way. And, and we are prepared now for
0: a lot of success ahead of us. I mean, w- when you think about the, the valuation of the company, this number, I mean, it, I guess it, it, it it's taken a little bit of a beating because of the, the crisis you face. But I mean, at its highest, it was it was what, like, like near $20 billion dollars? Yeah, 21, 21 billion, I think, was the highest. 21 billion. I mean, for a burrito restaurant started in Denver in 1993, um, that's pretty insane. You know, I mean, when, when you think about that, uh, I don't know. Do you sit back and say, you know, wow, look at how how awesome is that? Or do you don't even think about that? It doesn't really
1: work that way. Hmm. Um, it's it's not big stair step sort of increases. It's it's relatively linear, you know, and and sort of you know just it getting bigger, taking on more responsibility, the valuation, all this sort of thing. It's just
0: it's it's been a relatively linear. And do you think? And and so is it the, that amount of money just abstract? I, I don't understand the question. I mean, do you, is is it mean anything? I mean, because I would think I would be incredibly proud of that. You know that that you grow this thing to such a huge place in in that period of time. So again, I've always, so when
1: I, before I started the first restaurant, I, I, I used to tell people that I wanted to show that just because food is served fast doesn't mean it has to be a typical fast food experience. Mm. And that evolved to saying that I want to change the way Americans think about and eat fast food. And I, re- I remember when I started saying that, we weren't very big. That, that sounded like a big, audacious goal. Mm. Um, but, but the basic idea behind our purpose is that, you know, food that's raised right should be people's everyday food. Mm. And as I see others who have open restaurants that are based on the Chipotle model, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about that. To, that's that's what
0: that's what drives us how much of of your success do you think is because of luck and and how much because of your hard work and skill so
1: you know my success in the early days was i think i i caused a lot of that success but i then you have to layer on being in the right place at the right time mm. i was lucky to to have a father who could who could invest eighty-five thousand dollars in my first restaurant because I couldn't have raised that money myself? That uh, McDonald's allowed me to basically run the company and tap into their resources. You know, it's a combination, but also a lot of it is a you know if I if I go back to this this concept that I learned in cooking school, it's it's this French term called mise en place.
0: Mm-hmm. Everything in its right place. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Everything in its place, and it's and it's basically you know you could think about it you know before service you have your mise en place and, and that means that once service starts everything you need for a successful service that night is laid out mm. just so yeah and and so i, I think about i think about uh, you know my overall mise en place that i've that i've set myself up for success and that seems to make sense for me
0: that's steve ell's founder of chipotle By the way, Steve stepped down as CEO from the company in 2018, and despite the fact that Chipotle now makes enough money for Steve to fulfill his dream and open up that high-end restaurant he always dreamed about, he says that moment has kind of passed, and, you know, there's still a lot of money to be made in burritos. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at HowIBuiltThis or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, it's at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by Ramtin Arablui, who also composed the music. Thanks also to Farah Safari, Liz Metzger, Dareth Gales, Julia Carney, J.C. Howard, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and
1: everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Guy Raz here. And I have a new show that I think you're going to love. From Wondery and hosted by Laura Beale, the critically acclaimed podcast Dr. Death is back with a new season called Dr. Death Bad Magic. It's a story of miraculous cures, magic, and murder. When a charismatic doctor announces revolutionary treatments for cancer and HIV, it seems like the world has been given a miracle cure. Medical experts rush to praise Dr. Sirhat Gumruku as a genius. But when a team of private researchers looks into Sirhat's background, they begin to suspect the brilliant doctor is hiding a shocking secret. And when a man is found dead in the snow with his wrists shackled and bullet casings speckling the snowbank... Sirhat would no longer be known for world-changing treatments. He'd be known as a fraud and a key suspect in a grisly murder. Follow Dr. Death Bad Magic on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Dr. Death Bad Magic ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.